we will have an action-packed 12-month opportunity for Australians to celebrate the great achievements of athletes wearing green and gold. We know that because of COVID, everything is uncertain. We, we know we need to be flexible, but we also know if we can be flexible, our sports can be flexible, then we'll put our athletes in a very strong position to succeed in, uh, in Birmingham. From Alyssa Green. I think I was just in so much shock, even though I had um, believed that I was capable of running that fast. When something becomes your reality, it's this enormous um, outpouring of emotions, of, of joy and realisation and um, knowing that it had all been worth it. The people that know me, those in my, what I call my, my little running, my running world, my running team, my running family, and they know who they are, absolutely stood by my side. Um, yeah. And if it wasn't for them and their support, I'd hate to think what would have happened. Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport. Hello and welcome to Sport Integrity Australia's podcast Onside. I'm Tim Gavel. In this episode, we'll hear from the Commonwealth Games Australia CEO Craig Phillips, the Australian record holder for the women's 100 metres on the track, Melissa Breen, and Cassie Fien about her life after testing positive as the result of taking a supplement. Since the 1st of July, Sport Integrity Australia has been developing strategies with sports to help them implement their own integrity measures. Craig Phillips has been the CEO of Commonwealth Games Australia since 2015. Craig has more than 35 years experience in the sports industry, including 24 years as the Technical Director, Director of Sport and the Secretary General of the Australian Olympic Committee. He's the most capped Olympic team official in Australian sporting history, including planning, management and leadership of 12 Australian Olympic campaigns. Well, Craig, uh, welcome to Onside. G'day Tim, good to be here. Uh, you're in the midst of planning the Australian preparation for the 2022 Birmingham Commonwealth Games. Is it easy during this COVID time or is it uh, a little more difficult than is normally the case? Uh, Tim, it does present some challenges for us because uh, one of the things we obviously the most significant impact is the change to the, uh, the sporting calendar over the next couple of years with uh, Tokyo Olympic and Paralympic Games moving a year and then the impact that had on on other major international events. But uh, so that for us uh, presents operational challenges around um, how we we deal with our member uh, sports organisations who are in many cases are also Olympic and Paralympic organisations and how we navigate around what we need to do without disrupting uh, the work they're doing with their athletes leading into Tokyo. But there are some upsides. I mean, we, we know that uh, uh, the, the closeness of those two games has some benefits for athletes. Uh, we know that... Um, yeah, there's some certain things that uh, the Australian Olympic Committee and the Paralympics Australia are doing, which we can actually support us in our in our operational planning. Uh, but we know that because of COVID, uh, everything is ups- uncertain. Uh, we need to we we know we need to be flexible. Uh, but we also know if we can be flexible, our sports can be flexible. Then we'll put our athletes in a very strong position to succeed in uh, in Birmingham. Some of the changes already underway. There won't be an athletes' village in Birmingham. 
Yeah, it won't be one single village, which is the norm for a Commonwealth Games. Um, so because of the disruption of COVID with, to the construction program, there won't be a, a new build uh, village. So it'll be three, uh, three smaller villages spread across Birmingham. Uh, again, the challenge that presents for us is, is the team building aspects, the games experience aspects. But the positive is um, that in a number of cases, we're putting our athletes much closer to their, to their venues and in some, case, in some cases at a higher uh, specification of, of accommodation. So, you know, athletes having single rooms, all that sort of stuff, which you normally don't get in a village. So there is some upside. I mean, we've even got one of the villages where athletes will be able to walk from the village into their venue. So, so you know, from a performance point of view, those things are very positive. It's the team building stuff around that we have to work harder on and we'll, and we'll do that. Will there be any issues in terms of qualification, given that um, at the moment, uh, no international travel, nobody's really sure when that is going to get back into swing. Is that an issue for you? It, it could be. We'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, one of the things about Commonwealth Games, which avoids some of the issues that the Olympics may have, is that uh, for a number of our sports, there is no specific qualification system or uh, qualification events. So it, it'll be based on a, a number that we have to allocate in terms of athlete numbers. So from that perspective, um, you don't need discrete events to actually drive qualification. There are some events, of course, where that you do need that to happen. But the good thing is, is based on what the qualification systems are looking like, um, you know, we're well placed with you know, some of our team sports and other, other sports that have that. Probably the one area that will be challenged will be around the para events. Uh, because if if uh, with the delay in, in the Paralympics or if, unfortunately, and we hope this doesn't happen, but if the Paralympics doesn't happen next year, then that may have a flow-on effect in terms of qualification of para-athletes for us. But we'll just have to keep an eye on that um, as we go forward. Yeah. I, I just wonder, money-wise, uh, it is pretty tight financially at the moment, isn't it, globally? getting sponsors on board. Is that an issue for you? Uh, and governments seem to have less money to, to spend on sport. Is, is that a problem? Look, from our point of view, I, I guess our, our funding sources are, are twofold largely. It's um, it's uh, certainly the commercial revenue through sponsorship. And we've just uh, we've just launched our sponsorship program and are now in the marketplace. Um, but we'll see how that goes in the next, in the next uh, you know, two years, 18 months. Um, the other thing is we have a, a foundation where we have a lot of uh, our, our, our capital basis parked and we do rely on a draw on that, that foundation to fund our operations and also fund our sports. So as yet, we haven't felt a direct impact of COVID, but it could come over the horizon for us if the return on our investments is down or if commercial revenue doesn't come. Our sports are hurting now. Uh, we know they're hurting. Um and you know we, they are heavily relying on government money. One of the things we're looking for at the moment is is the commitment by the Australian Sports Commission to give them two years of certainty in funding. So this current financial year and then the final financial year leading into Birmingham, the, the certainty around the final financial year in the Birmingham hasn't been forthcoming, and we're trying to work very hard with government to get them to actually provide that certainty, because we know our members are hurting. That you know it's just some numbers I've seen recently. Their receipts from uh, membership um, are down uh, 59% or, or forecast to be down 59%. Their receipts from commercial revenue, so from things like sponsorship, down 49%. Uh, and their receipts from their state sporting organisations 
uh, through affiliations and other fees are down something like 58%. So that's a significant impact on our member sports. So they are they are struggling along at the moment and they're just trying to keep keep the doors open for, the, for their sport. So we're okay right now, but our members are the ones that are, are really feeling the impact. Yeah. Are you concerned about the solvency of, of some of those sports that are involved in the Commonwealth program then? Oh, look, we, we are, and certainly I know the Australian Sports Commission is uh, is keeping an eye on that. Uh, but certainly, you know, that we we know that that, that remains an issue. Um, I guess the upside is, you know, for a lot of our sports, high, uh, high reliance on government funding means that if there is the certainty of government funding there, and as, as I just spoke to, uh, then then that protects them from that. But we know, you know, people who have the responsibility of being on the boards of these organisations, they have to keep an eye on whether they can keep their doors open. They have to have to be conscious of that. Um, so, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it and keep working with our sports on that. Uh, we're hopeful that they'll, they'll ride through this. Do you, do you play a, a leadership role in this and and try and guide some of the smaller sports through because uh, some of the bigger sports may be able to handle it, but some of the smaller sports may struggle if they don't get some guidance? Yeah, look, I think I think our our key role here is is very much about advocacy advocacy of funding, and uh, you know, and that's something we're right in the middle of right now with uh, with uh, Sport Australia and the AIS, and 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 as I said, trying to get that certainty of funding, which which the government has agreed to the the minister has uh, to you know to his great credit has championed uh, an inflow of 50.6 million dollars to to our member sports organizations over two years over this year and next year uh, it's making sure that money goes out the door from the AIS and, and sport Australia into our membership so the role we're playing is very much about making sure that money goes out the door so they have the money uh, and they have the certainty of that money over two years so they they can they can plan around that so that the impact that these other things of commercial revenue, while are still going to be significant, at least can be blunted uh, to a certain extent because government is continuing to support them. We know the minister is supportive, and, and you know we do appreciate what he has done for our members. But the, you know, Sport Australia has to continue to deliver. Just on the the pack schedule. Sporting-wise, 2022, does that concern you or, or does it excite you because there is so much sport on? You've got the Olympic Games next year, you've got the Commonwealth Games 2022, plus a lot of sports that have been pushed forward to 2021 and 2022. Yeah. Look, look, I think, you know, we've got to manage some of that and probably Athletics World Championships is the one that's probably crowds most into the into the Commonwealth Games. And we've had discussions with Athletics Australia how we manage that because because we know a significant chunk of that that world championship team will also be part of the Commonwealth Games team, but we th- we think also the Commonwealth Games team may have athletes who who won't be going to the world championship. So so we're just going to manage that. That's the one that has the most significant impact. Um, look, there is an exciting opportunity here, Tim. Um, from from July August next year, with the Tokyo Olympics through Paralympics, through in through uh, the back end of twenty one into the Winter Olympics and Paralympics. Some of those world championship events that have moved into 2022 through to our games in Commonwealth Games in, in, in July, August next year, we will have an action-packed 12-month opportunity for Australians to celebrate the great achievements of, of athletes wearing green and gold. It doesn't happen. It's never happened, I don't think, ever for anybody at any time. So we, we see this wonderful opportunity for Australians 
Australian sport for that, you know, for Australians to get behind athletes wearing the green and gold for that 12-month window. And we're part of that. And we've got to make sure that we continue to invest in it and government continues to invest in making the most out of that. One of the measures that government has um, is is providing pride and inspiration to our nation through through its athletes. And no, and there's no more important time in our history, I don't think, than this right now. As we, as we hopefully we get into next year and we get into the middle of next year and we're exiting COVID, that to have athletes in the green and gold leading that rebuild, leading that excitement, leading that inspiration for our nation, is absolutely vitally important. So the Commonwealth Games plays a critical part of that at the end. So we're actually excited by that opportunity. The Commonwealth Games often, uh, and I sense it in your voice there, uh, are the friendly games, aren't they? They're the games that really do unite a lot of nations, less so probably in the Olympic Games, which is which is far bigger. The Commonwealth Games is very much our event, isn't it? It is. Very much. Look, Australians love the Commonwealth Games. We know that in on the Gold Coast recently, our home games, we had an estimated TV audience here in Australia of of uh, sixteen plus million people. Um, worldwide TV audience of one point five one point five billion people. Um, you know, serious engagement on social media. You know, we we know we know there's Commonwealth Games resonates with Australians. So from our point of view, it's important we continue to, you know, do the best we can for our athletes to to be showcased through the games. But, you know, it's a an important place in in the life of athletes as they emerge um, and then go on to greater things. You know, I was just having a conversation earlier today about the role that the 94 games in, in uh, Victoria in Canada played in the career of Cathy Freeman. You know, the, the, the role it played in the career of uh, Patria Thomas. The same in 2002 with Anna Mears. Um, how 2006 Melbourne Games uh, took Steve Hooker from being an athlete who was on the fringes of success in, in the pole vault um, to being a successful athlete in 2008. Um, it, the, our, our history of Commonwealth Games is littered with athlete stories that tell tell us about the great uh, launch pad it gave athletes to go on to bigger and better things at the, at the Olympic Games. And we continue to remind uh, the Australian Sports Commission, the AS, of that important role it plays. So we know there'll be athletes who'll go to Birmingham and it will be the start of an important journey for them. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Craig. I, I get a different feel about the Commonwealth Games than I do about the Olympics. And you'd know well and truly what I'm talking about there, given that you have been involved in both the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games. And just the, the, the sense that I get talking to you now, you just love the, the general feel about the Commonwealth Games where there is a friendliness and it's you know it, it excites the Australian public like no other sporting event uh, because they they can really relate to it. Yeah, it, it is, Tim. And look, it gives opportunities for athletes from around the Commonwealth to to come and and athletes who may not go on to Olympic the Olympic Games because it's maybe a bridge too far for them. But you know, and again, I think back to Gold Coast and that wonderful image from the the women's ten thousand meter event where. Uh, our, our three uh, uh, 10,000 metre runners stopped and waited for the last runner to finish. You know, the, the, if you want to see anything that embodies the friendly games, that, that image is it. They didn't have to do that. No one asked them to do that. But the three of them decided that it was an important thing to do to show their friendship for an athlete from another part of the Commonwealth and wait for that person to finish their, finish the race. You know, and, and again, we have stories like that all, all of the time at Commonwealth Games. 
And, you know, if we want to be proud of athletes and we want to be inspired by athletes, it is a great theatre for that to happen. What drives you in this role, Craig? Is it a love of sport? Is it, um, is it something else? What, what do you like about it? Oh, certainly a love of a love of sport, Tim. I mean, I've I've spent a career uh, working in sport. I often joke about the fact that I'll go and get a real job at some stage. But um, you know, from my point of view, uh, it, it's being able to help athletes achieve the best they can they can. Because through that, I'm helping you know, not while well, not always young Australians, largely young Australians to to achieve a dream uh, or to you know to take the steps along the journey to a bigger dream. And, and that's what I I find it exciting about it. The other exciting thing about the Commonwealth Games, I guess different to my, my AOC role, um, even though you know, I did work through the, the Sydney period, is that the Commonwealth Games comes back to Australia more often than the Olympic Games ever will. Uh, we are regular hosts and we love hosting and we just saw that on the Gold Coast recently. And we, you know, we always have ambitions to host again. So for me, it's playing a role in doing that. So playing a role in the organisation of the Gold Coast Games, but then also now working on trying to get the next host to line up for us. Is is what that what the games does for a com- for communities? It, you know, it creates jobs. You know, over twenty thousand jobs were created around the Gold Coast. You know, the economic impact two two point five billion dollars of economic impact in the Queensland and, and Gold Coast economy. Um, building sport infrastructure that may never have been built. Accelerating transport infrastructure that you may have to wait another twenty years to get built. So the exciting thing about the event is what it does for athletes and what it does through the, through the theatre of competition, but it's also what it does as an event to actually benefit a community for the longer term. And, we, and you know, the Gold Coast has the benefit now and will enjoy the benefit for many years to come of having hosted the Commonwealth Games. That that excites me and that's what, for me, you know, as I approach, I guess, t- towards the end of the latter stages of my career, uh, to be able to give that back to an Australian community is really important. Uh, Craig, it, it sounds like you're starting to reflect a little bit because uh, you're closer to the end than the start and starting to think, uh, well, might be something else in life after this, but a um, chance to look back on, on what you've achieved. Yeah, it, it, it does. And I, I think it I think it gives you a bit of perspective around the role. I think you can sometimes, if you're not careful in high-performance high sport, be very myopically focused just on medal outcomes and all that. But when you can actually see the broader impact of your work, uh, that's that's very rewarding. Thanks, Craig. Uh, you've been a great leader in Australian sport for the past 35 years, including 24 years as the Technical Director, Director of Sport and Secretary General of the Australian Olympic Committee. You've been in a leadership role at 12 Australian Olympic campaigns, the most capped Olympic team official in Australian sporting history and currently the CEO of the Commonwealth Games Australia organisation since 2015. Thanks very much for joining us on Onside today. Thank you, Tim. Good to join you. You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Welcome back to Onside. Time now for our new segment from the Highlight Reel, where we go back in time and relive an important milestone in Australian sport. In 2014, at the AIS track in Canberra, 23-year-old Melissa Breen broke the 20-year-old national record for the 100 metres with a time of 11.11, breaking the record set by Melinda Gainsford-Taylor in 1994. Melissa has recently announced her retirement from the sport after representing Australia at both the Commonwealth and Olympic Games. It is time now, though, to reflect on a marvellous career. Mel, welcome to Onside. Thank you very much, Tim, for having me. 
Well, Mel, can you tell us about the build-up to that record-breaking run in 2014? Sure. I guess the beginning of that six months into that journey was really rough. Um, I was overseas at the end of 2013 competing at the World Champs, which were in Moscow. I was really struggling health-wise. I wasn't injured, but I couldn't put my finger on what was actually happening. I um, came back to Australia. Um, It was in about August, September 2013 and had some blood tests done and discovered that I had um, a severe liver and kidney infection um, that was really messing with my system and my body at the time. Earlier in 2013, I travelled overseas um, and got really bad food poisoning. So it was a resultant of that that led to some really challenging uh, times for me at the end of 2013 health health wise. Um, I stopped training. I actually had a break from training. I wasn't allowed to start my training back um, until my blood tests were a lot better. Um, Thankfully, that all mostly cleared up and I began a mission to break the Australian record. It's something that I had dreamt about uh, for all of my life. And motivation comes in all different factors. And as spoken about before, at the end of 2013, um, as a result of not competing well at the World Championships, due to illness, I lost uh, funding from Athletics Australia. And as I said, motivation comes in all different forms. And sometimes it was about proving people wrong. (laughs) And again, about proving the supporters right. So I knuckled down. I got through an awesome amount of training. I was really healthy. I wasn't injured and I was just putting weeks in the bank. And come that day in February in uh, 2014, on the 9th of February, I went to the AGM and (laughs) took out all the the bickies I'd been depositing and got that amazing result. So for me, it was um, a really challenging journey to get to that point, but it was such a moment of uh, redemption, of feeling really proud to have overcome some really challenging obstacles on that pursuit of of breaking Melinda's record. And it was just pure joy, that moment of realisation when I crossed the line and I heard the announcer, Ollie Worm, who was my training partner at the time, he was calling the heats and he yelled out 11.08. And I was like, What? And it took me a little bit in my mind to compute what mm. that even meant. And then it rounded up to 11.11. And I think I was just in so much shock, even though I had um, believed that I was capable of running that fast. When something becomes a reality, it's this enormous um, outpouring of emotions, of, of joy and realisation and um, knowing that it had all been worth it. It was such a magical day that... Um, yeah, I, I think of so fondly and I can't believe how much time has actually passed, really. Now we're thinking of, you know, we're in the middle of 2020 and, yeah, it seems like just yesterday, even talking about it now. Well, Mel, uh, let's relive that special moment. So away, clearly, Breen is off to a flyer. Brandon's trying to take it out, but all Melissa Breen, she is off to a flyer. Breen is running quickly, gentlemen. Brennan chasing it down for Melissa Breen. Hello! Still sends a chill up the spine, doesn't it? Uh, listening to Ollie's call there. Oh, it does. <laughs> and he knew, he knew straight away, uh, you know, sort of there at the time. I, I just know what was going through everybody's mind 
they were witnessing history, weren't they? It was. It was such a special day. And obviously to do it in Canberra in front of um, so many amazing training partners that I've had over the years, having my parents there, it was just such a perfect day. And yeah, then I then I had to back up in the final um, to to race against Sal in that final, and it uh, was one of the rare times that I had I beat her. <laughs> it was a really close a really close run in that final, and again very very close to that record again. So it was just such a such a perfect day, and it came from consistency and belief, and and surrounding myself with a really really good team here in Canberra. So yeah, really really special. Yes, I think in that final uh, where you beat Sally Pearson for the first time in about 30 head-to-head clashes and the time in the final was about 11.15, so just outside the record. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it was almost a relief, wasn't it, just to get the final out of the way so that you could you could really celebrate the fact that you'd broken the record in the semifinals. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that um, that Matt Beckenham um, and I spoke about between the heat and the final and it was just – I remember sitting in – in the office up at the at the track and I was just such in a whirlwind and he says, Mel, you've still got a job to do. And it was true, I did. I had another race and a really, really important race. So I remember staying at that start line for for that final against Sal and I'm just thinking, oh, my God, I'm the fastest Australian ever. And I was like, okay, Mel, no. <laughs> just concentrate on your cues. Think about exactly what you need to do. And the result will take care of itself. And that um, was something really powerful. And I just switched on and, and thought about exactly what I had to execute in that race. And I knew what would happen in that race. Sally was a phenomenal starter and I knew she'd be up there. She just works so hard and so hard and her turnover is so impressive. So I knew and I had rehearsed that race and how it would unfold in my head so many times before that race. And I had to back myself because I knew at the time my top end speed. So from about... 60 metres to home. So the last 40 metres, I knew that I had a higher top end speed. So if I was really close to her through the middle part of that race, I had to back myself in able to, um, I guess, come over the top of her. And that's it's exactly, um, it played out exactly as I thought in my head. So that vis- visualisation was was really important in that moment because it, it could have just got so caught up with what had happened in the heat and um, and kind of, I guess, let yourself down, let the team down by not executing again in that final. Yeah. I talk about relief because I know the pressure that you are under, you know, not only the, the funding being cut, but the illness, the injuries, et cetera. At, at the end of it, did you have a cry or what did you, what did you do <laughs> given, the, given, the, given it all happened and you'd been, yeah. you'd been building it up for a while? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, definitely when Lauren, uh, Lauren Bowden, when she came down to the finish line and when I saw her and she was quite emotional and obviously when your friends get emotional about something, it's it's kind of your tipping point as well. And mm. I just think for the next couple of nights, I didn't sleep because I was just so wide um, with what had happened. So, yeah, it was just, it's just amazing. And even now I, I look back and think we actually did that. And um, there was a, quite a few moments um, definitely throughout my career where, the odds were definitely stacked against me, but we found a way. So I take great comfort in knowing that whatever cards I was dealt, um, that the team around me and I were um, full of self-belief and full of resilience to overcome as many obstacles as, as we could. And there was quite a few. And um, yeah, it was just just an awesome day when I think of it. I just can't believe how, as I said before, I can't believe how time goes so fast, passes so quickly. <laughs> 
Uh, and Melinda Gaines-Pataylor, she was quite gracious, wasn't she? Uh, mem- from memory, she, she sent you a tweet to congratulate you. So she was happy that the baton had been handed over to you. Yeah, well, it was um, really special. So as you said, Mel set the record in 94, so just when I was four years old. So it took um, quite a long time for someone to break it. And I looked up to her so much, along with Kathy and, and watching, and Lauren Hewitt as well, watching all those amazing women um, through the late 90s, early 2000s, and, and just seeing the amazing sprinting nation that Australia's had. So to, I guess, have put myself um, at the top of that list in terms terms of times was something so special and, and we went to Sydney um the day after um, I broke the record and and did a media call um under the harbour bridge and, and Mel came to that so it was literally um like handing the baton over so that was really really special to be able to, to be able to take that baton on and there will be a day that that someone else comes along and, and breaks that record but so now it's mine and when that day does come isn't that so exciting for for women's sprinting in Australia. So, yeah, I hope that I have it for a few more years yet. <laughs> How hard was it then to replicate what you did on that day? Oh, it was absolutely. Um, obviously, I, I, obviously, I never replicated that one again. I um, don't think it was my best. It was definitely my fastest run, but I had a really good tailwind that day. So there are other competitions um pre and post breaking the record that was in the 1120s which are really great runs um but in my mind I guess I always thought oh I'll just run faster the next year and then run faster again then break 11 um but that was that never happened and we made some choices uh post uh breaking the record to um back training off a little bit um the previous year I trained really well and, and ran 11.25 in Sydney um, and then ramped up training and tore my calf. So we went to the other extreme after breaking the record and I probably undertrained um, to conserve the body and to ensure I remained injury-free. So that obviously had its benefits. I didn't get injured, but therefore I didn't run faster again. So at the time, it seemed like the right choice. Um, and even if I had my time again, I... I wouldn't change it because I was really happy to to not be injured. <laughs> Being an injured athlete is, as many athletes know, are extremely challenging both physically and mentally. So it was really frustrating not to have run faster, but I did go on to make two more Commonwealth Games, make another Olympics and a couple more world champs. So I think I take solace in the fact that it did take somebody 20 years to break that record. It's not something that could have just uh, been repeated and repeated and repeated. So although in the ideal world, yes, that's exactly what you want to happen. And um, I believe that for a long time. But sometimes your body has different plans of, of what you can do. And just because I didn't run faster again in my career doesn't mean that day didn't happen. And for me that day, everything aligned for me. And to run that fast... I needed things to align for me. I, as I said, I had those six months of uninterrupted training. I was really healthy. I wasn't injured. I had great weather that day in Canberra. I had a 1.9 tailwind, the best you can ask for. So, yeah, it was just – it was perfect. And, um, of course, I've always wanted more, but I'm so very satisfied with everything I've done. I couldn't have run faster. Um, there's nothing else we could have done. So – to retire now, as we've spoken about, it's something that um, I just feel really, 
fulfilling and, and really right to move on because when I think of my bucket list and everything I wanted to achieve, I've done pretty much everything. So I feel very, very grateful for that. And sometimes the body just wants to have a bit of a, a bit of a break from the intensity and it's been half my life spending in that, in that world. Before we let you go, Mel, as you reflect on your career and you've obviously announced your retirement quite recently, opting not to go to a third Olympic Games, but what was the biggest moment in your life as a runner? What's your, what, what is your favourite sporting moment <laughs> as an athlete? Oh, that's really hard. There's, oh, there's three that are really, really special to me. Um, making London Olympics, so making my first Olympics, 12 years after walking into Sydney Olympics with my parents and realising that's what I wanted to do, I got to go to the opening ceremony and that moment of realisation of, of competing for Australian Olympics was a moment of pure joy and exhilaration. Um, so that moment um, in London walking out with Lauren was one of the best moments of our life and it was so very special that we got to share that together. Obviously breaking the record is very high and the other one that um, is, I guess, less dramatic in that sense was actually winning the Aubrey Wodonga gift in 2014, running on the grass oval down in Aubrey at the showgrounds and winning that gift for my grandfather. Family means everything to me and my pa is no longer with us. It's the only tattoo I have on my body, on my wrist is his initials and looking back and winning that gift and that race for him and my whole family being down there in Aubrey that day is the ultimate in family and sport and reaffirms to me why we do what we do. So that moment is, is very, very special to me. That's great, Mel. Thanks very much for joining us on Onside. It's been a marvellous career. And once again, we celebrate that moment in February 2014 at the AIS track. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. We're now going to explore the dangers of supplement use on an athlete's career with marathon runner Cassie Fan. Cassie has been running since she was 12 and always dreamed about competing at the Olympic Games. She was on the fringe of being selected on the Australian Commonwealth Games team before a positive test turned her career into disarray. In 2018, Cassie received a nine-month sanction after she took a supplement she thought was safe to use in sport. Cassie Fan is speaking here to Linda Larkham. Thanks for joining us, Cassie. First up, I have to ask, why the marathon? Yeah, good question. Um, it's probably one of those, those tougher races. Um, I think for me, uh, I am very comfortable in, in the um, endurance space. Um, I, I don't think I have what's called a lot of fast twitch muscle fibres. So, um, you know, I tend to, to go at one speed. Um, I think even my, my 5k PB is um, in my 10k. So, which doesn't make any sense. You know, I, you can do a flat out 5k or, you know, in my 10k, my, my PB is there. So, I think for me, just getting to that rhythm, um, I think the mental aspect for me I really love is because your mind is just telling you constantly to give up or to slow down. Um, but I, I just love pushing through that and seeing how far I can, you know, actually push my, my brain, you know, to, to continue on. So do you ever think I can't do this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in training and in races. And uh, it's, it's, 
and that's I think the that that feeling once you cross the finish line knowing how many times you told yourself that you just can't do it anymore um and you do do it you know that that's what you you come back for again and you and you just crave it and it's 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 yeah it's a it's a really cool experience do you remember your first marathon and did you finish it yeah, I did my first marathon um, probably as not an elite. Um, I, I had the opportunity to do the Gold Coast Marathon um, and I wasn't in good form, but I'd always called myself a marathon runner but never done a marathon. And I was like, what if I die tomorrow? You know, I, I can't call myself a marathon runner. So I did I did end up doing, doing it, not being in condition and just remembering the last, you know, 10 Ks death was a better option. You know, um, I literally thought that with every step and, you know, I, I finished the race and went, Oh, maybe I'm not a marathon runner. And, um, but it did not take long for me to, you know, get some good training under my belt. Um, and then, yeah, my second one as, as an elite, um, I was invited over to the New York marathon, um, to go over there and, and compete as, um, the elite field, which was the most amazing I've been getting tingles now the most amazing experience of my life yeah you finished 12th in that one was that the race I suppose where you started to believe that you belonged oh gosh no again that race um you know probably the last five k's of that one um again death was a better option you know it was just I I crossed the line and um my body just gave out on me. I was one of those ones that had to get, you know, limped up um, uh, to help uh, aided, I guess, into the tent. And I remember lying down and my body was going into shock. It was just, it was, I couldn't even tell you where I was aching, but I was aching at every single part of my body. And um, I, I could barely, barely move. And, um, you know, once I, I eventually recovered, um, you know, I was pretty disappointed, um, you know, in my performance with that one. And again, I had those, those thoughts that, maybe I'm just not good enough, you know. Um, and then, yeah, it didn't take long for me to get that spark to get some more training under my belt and, um, and, and see what I could do, yeah. As an elite athlete, you were regularly tested by ASADA. Do you remember much about the test on the 20th of April 2017? Um, the testing day, yeah. Um, I remember I, I had a, a couple of ladies came out. They would always regularly test me. I'd get the same ladies. So it was like, oh, come in, come in for a cuppa, you know. Um, and, and we sat down at the table, um, did what I had, just had general chit chat with them, did what we normally did. And I listed all my supplements that I was taking, um, you know, did the, the urine test, the blood test and okay, see you later. Not a problem. Like, didn't, didn't, it was just a regular routine, you know, um, out of competition testing for me. Yep. Okay. So you didn't have any concerns then? Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, as I said, I listed all the supplements I was taking and even though I was listing them down, it's, I, I knew that I'd checked them all and I felt quite comfortable. So what was your reaction then when you were told that your sample contained a banned substance? It must've floored you. Um, so yeah, I was obviously got the call, um, and I was in a little bit of a, a bit of a daze. Uh, I remember the, the, um, the gentleman from Asada kept having to, Cassie, do you, are you listening to me? I'm, I've got to tell you this information. And, and I was kind of nodding along, but, but not really comprehending what he was saying. Um, and then I went, uh, well, as soon as I hung up the phone, I went into shock straight away. 
um, to the point where, so I went hysterical, sorry, to start off with, um, screaming, crying, um, just completely out of control. And then all of a sudden I went into shock. So I hit the deck, um, I could see, I could hear, um, but I couldn't speak. So I couldn't communicate to people and they were, they were trying to get things out of me. And I was in my head going, I can see you, I can hear you, but I, I just can't, I can't, I can't converse with you. Uh, so I was taken to hospital in an ambulance um, and eventually the doctors came in and um, was trying to talk to me and uh, yeah, I eventually, they wouldn't release me until I could converse with them. Um, and eventually I got a couple of words out. And uh, then I was released into my brother's care for 20, like constant supervision for 24 hours, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I couldn't eat or drink or anything for nearly, nearly three days. And uh, I just guess I felt um, sort of numb and like, yeah, something had been ripped out of me. Like, I just couldn't really, I didn't know how I was going to keep living. Yeah, yeah. Cassie, I can only imagine what that was like for you. So what did you know about hygienamine at that point? So I know I did read uh, an alert from Asada that came out about hygienamine, um, because from, from my understanding, what was happening is that a lot of athletes were were being done inadvertently from hygienamine because they were in so many different products. So that's when they put out this alert, um, you know, and I, I do remember checking it and, and, and checking, oh, my God, like, no, nope, none of my, none of the ingredients and none of the, the products I was taking was on it. So, um, again, I felt fine because... It, I checked it and then checked the alert. Um, but other than that, I, I, I didn't know what it did. I didn't know what effects it had. I, I had no idea. I mean, I bought this from a local nutrition warehouse in Australia um, with the nutrition warehouse label on the sticker on the top. Um, and yeah, checked, checked the substances as well. And there was, there was no hygiene on the label at all. So you've checked the substance, the hygienamine's not listed on it. Do you feel cheated? Uh, not, not cheated and also oh, not used, but um, uh, like a false like a um, false sense of security, like you know they've they've put something on there that is not what it is is actually, you know um, mm. yeah, it just didn't. I just, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I have to ask, you were a two-time winner of the Sydney City to Surf, three-time winner of the Bridge to, to Brisbane and eighth in Berlin. Why did you think you needed to take supplements? It, I wasn't a full-time athlete. So I, you know, couldn't have the, the, the four square meals a day and the, the sleep after I have a training session. And, you know, in that perfect, perfect world of an elite athlete, I think what I was struggling with was being an elite athlete, but not living, not having the lifestyle to, to be able to live like one. Um, so again, you, you try to find, okay, I can't have that lifestyle. So what can I do legally within my power 
to, to try to get my optimum. And that's when I was naive um, and got drawn into those supplement companies. Oh, this will make you recover better and this will help your training and this will help you focus. And, um, and I did, I'll absolutely admit that I did get drawn into that. You do what you can to try to perform at your optimum within the rules of your sport. Yeah, absolutely. But despite everything, do you take ownership for your actions? I think me as a, as a person, I don't like to, to blame and, and shift the blame game. I could, you know, shift the blame game to the, the supplement company or, um, you know, anything like that. But at the end of the day, the big message that they do get across um, to you in Asada, and I've always taken that on board, is that you are responsible for what you put in your body. Um, so as much as I... It's a hard one because it was, you know, I did my due diligence. Um, there was absolutely no in, in intention behind it from from my point of view. Uh, I tried to do everything that we had, uh, you know, well, everything in my power of the rules of my sport, um, and yet I still, I still went positive, you know. So, but at the end of the day, I guess that's 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 the risk you run. Um, but that can be the same for any food. Like if you put meat in your head that has those extra hormones in it or something like that, um, is that unfair? Yeah, it probably is too. But um, I guess yes. I, do, I what I'm trying to say is I I do I do take ownership, um, but at the same time it's. Um, yeah, just a bit unfair. Yeah, it's even more distressing, isn't it? Because running's very close to your heart. I, my, oh, my dad was killed very, very young. When I was very young, he was um, about to coach me. Um, uh, he wasn't really interested in running um, at all, actually. He, he let mum take me to, to all my running events and... Um, and eventually, I, 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 he he really appreciated commitment to something. And when he saw my dedication and commitment, he'd be like, "Oh, I'll come to this race." And and then you know he'd he'd come to more races. And then you know he'd come down to my training and see what my coach was doing. And um, and then eventually he was like, oh, "I think I want to I think I want to coach you." He ran um, uh, the Gold Coast Half Marathon. Like this is this is a guy that plays the drums and loves cars. You know to to completely change um, and and to actually take up running himself and he started by riding a bike next to me and then um, he would start running with me and I'd have to go and I'd round a tree and then round him and then round a tree and then round him and it was just it was it was amazing that um, yeah to see someone drawn into their their own child's you know um, interests and passions and it became a passion themselves. Um, I just remember when I was at the hospital I'm <laughs> sorry um, I said I'd make it for you, Dad, and that was about the Olympics. So, yeah. Um, so it was obviously really important for me, um, and running is a connection to him. So, um, yeah, it's not just a sport for me. Um, it's way more than that. Yeah, I talk to him a lot in my head when I'm when I'm running, or, um, and that's why I try to take every opportunity I can because. He didn't get the opportunity to, to do the things in his life um, that he wanted to do. So um, 
we, so yeah, I just wanted to try to get the most out of what I can. Um, and I just, that, that, yeah, and that connection for me is when I'm out on the pavement, when I'm running every single time. Yeah. Mm. What message do you have for other athletes who are taking or maybe even considering taking supplements? Uh, I don't like to speak for everyone, but I know most athletes want to perform at their optimum, you know, and you do what you can to try to perform at your optimum within the rules of your sport. Um, but those marketing companies can can really draw in those particularly like even, you know, vulnerable people or, and also not watch what other people are doing. Like just because someone else is taking, taking something, you don't, you don't know for what reason they're taking it or, um, yeah, don't get sucked into others. Don't get sucked into the marketing of, of supplement companies and don't trust supplement companies. To think about really what your, what your, what your goals are and how you want to achieve that. So think about the sport that you're in and be, be conscious and aware of what your, what your responsibilities are as an athlete. And also probably a big one for me is supplement companies are not out to enhance or, or to help athletes. We've got to remember that supplement companies are out to make money um, and they will do it any way they can any way they can. Um, and if that affects humans, money trumps that. Um, so, you know, they could, they, are, they can misguide you, mislead you um, into thinking that you are um, taking something that's good for you or, or good for your body or good for your performance and legal, um, but they, they don't care in the end. You were banned for nine months. How did your life change after the ban? Um, to be called a cheat when I didn't cheat, um, that was probably the most difficult thing um, for me. I I'd lost my confidence. Um, uh, I, for a good six months, I hid myself away. Um, I just stayed at home. I didn't even see family. Um, and my, my, my passion out of life went, my purpose, my purpose out of life went. Um, and, you know, a lot of people could say, oh, it's just a sport, you know, just do something else. Um, but that link with my dad um, was, was too, it's too much for me. And I, you know, still to this day, I, um, it, it's what gets me up out of bed in the morning, you know, to, to have something to, to strive for and, and just even the feeling of, of going out for a run. So, um, yeah, I had to rebuild my life. Um, I was seeing psychiatrists, um, psychologists. Um, the last thing I wanted, but I had to be put on medication because I just wasn't, I wasn't able to, to pick myself up. Um, and, and kind of, yeah, move on. So it's taken, it, and still to this day, as you can see, it can, it's, still, it's still really raw. Um, yeah, but I hope, I hope one day in the future that I can, yeah, it just accept that that was a part of my life. Um, but yeah, I think it'll always be there, hanging over my head. So how do you think the sanction damaged your career or might have changed the way people looked at you? 
Um, I may have, may have lost respect from, from certain people. Um, and the first, the, and I guess just the perception of, of turning up to a race and, and not having that confidence because thinking that people are looking at me differently. Um, and yeah, it's, I don't, it will never be what it was like before. It's, it's, it's changed. And I, I, yeah, I may have to accept that, um, that, that side of my career is over. I, I may have to accept that. I'm, I'm not ready to yet because I feel that I've got nothing to be ashamed. Like I really honestly, hand on heart, don't feel I've had anything to be ashamed of. Ashamed of. Those in my, what I call my, my little running, my running world, my running team, my running family, and they know who they are. Um, I, I won't name names, but they definitely know who they are. Absolutely stood by my side. Um, yeah, and if it wasn't for them and their support, I'd hate to think what would have happened. Yeah. If you had one final message to other athletes, what would it be? The thing is that it didn't just affect me. Um, it affected my friends, my family. Um, it's, it's not just the athlete that suffers. It's everyone around them, everyone around them. So, yeah, if I could just reach out to, yeah, just even one athlete to just go, oh, I probably don't really need to be taking what I'm taking, then that's my job done. And now for our segment from Left Field, where we answer a question from the public. Hi, my name's Annabelle and I'm a Sport Integrity Australia athlete educator. The question I have from Left of Field today is, is there a minimum age for testing and being banned from sport? The answer is no, there is no minimum age for being tested. However, Sport Integrity Australia has testing processes to support athletes who are under 18 years. For example, minors can ask to have a parent or authorised representative such as a coach present with them during the testing process. This can help to make sure that the athlete feels comfortable during the testing process, especially if it's their first time. It is important to remember that all athletes, regardless of their age or the level they compete at, are subject to the same anti-doping rules and penalties. Ultimately, athletes are responsible for what they put into their bodies, even if they are a minor. However, if there are other contributing factors to a rule violation committed by a minor, such as the influence of a coach or parent, that will be taken into consideration when deciding the length of the sanction. Thanks for listening to Onside. If you'd like more information, simply head to the Sport Integrity Australia website for more details. And we have a lot more exciting guests and topics coming up in future episodes. So don't forget to follow and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening from. We appreciate the support. Thanks for listening. I'm Tim Gable. You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au, or check out our Clean Sport app.